You're listening to Don't Waste Water. No, it's not risky at all. And if you're not aspirational, and if you don't have some aspirational mission, you are definitely not going to accomplish it. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. Put yourselves in the shoes of a city leader telling people, we're going to take our wastewater, treat it, and give it to you to drink. You probably want to be able to say, and guess what? We took this great technology, we piloted it on our own wastewater for 18 months. We have all the test data. It's a thousand percent safe. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm super happy to welcome John Friedman as my guest. If you look in the US right now, one of the lenses that the Biden administration looks through when it thinks about environmental policy is environmental justice. And there are a lot of people who can't afford to pay for clean water. John is the Senior Vice President Global Government Affairs at SUSWTS. He's teaching about the future of water at the University of Pennsylvania. And starting next spring, he'll also be conducting a class on the business and governments of water at the Wharton School. I think the US government should put in place an investment tax credit to promote industrial reuse of water just like there's an investment tax credit to promote the adoption of wind energy and solar energy. What levers can you play on to promote greater water reuse? Well, you can act on the money side of the equation. For instance, by incentivizing the deployment of new technologies through grants and loans, but also by making the wrong behavior more expensive. You want to use your water only once and flush it away? No problem, as long as it becomes expensive. Third parties, be it government, utilities or agencies, can then make that money work to deploy the technologies I just mentioned. You can also play with regulations. People don't want to reuse, let's just make it mandatory. Forcing it isn't always the most elegant solution, but it's hard to argue that it doesn't work. And finally, on the total other end of the spectrum, you can award good pupils with recognition for their right moves. And that is the task John has on his plate right now, as he'll explain in a minute with his project of crowning a US water reuse champion. In a word that's never black or white, John will guide us through all the shades of grey and all the ongoing and future projects that mix some of these four approaches. Don't worry, I'll avoid spoiling too much of the thorough review of water reuse policies and their rollout at various scales, and I'll let you dive into my conversation with John. But right before we take off, don't forget that if you like what you hear and want to reward a bit my late evenings where I put together the pieces of advice and the golden nuggets my guests share on this microphone week after week, you can do it in a very easy and powerful fashion. Just take that episode and share it with your friends and colleagues. Do you know someone that would benefit from some bits of water wisdom? Just drop him a word and maybe a link to recommend him to this series. I trust you'll do it and I'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Hello, Antoine, and thank you for having me. Well, I'm very excited to have you, actually, because we have 
a full plate of topics and a deep dive on a topic which is very close to my heart, and I'm going to go a bit deeper into that in just a minute. But all of that starts with a very simple question, which is my tradition of the postcard. What can you tell me about the place you're at, which I would ignore by now? Well, I work in Washington, D.C., but I'm speaking to you from my home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Have you heard of Charlottesville? No, never. Never? Let's be honest. <laughs> Have you heard of the University of Virginia? Oh, yeah. So yeah. Charlottesville, Virginia is a couple hours outside Washington, D.C. It's in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It is where the University of Virginia is, which was founded by Thomas Jefferson, whose home Monticello is here. So it's a beautiful town in the outskirts of Washington, D.C. And you have a link with uh, the University of Pennsylvania, right? I do. Talking so, universities. Well, <laughs> I went to the University of Virginia for college, which is here in Charlottesville. And for business school, I went to the Wharton School, which is at the University of Pennsylvania. And second link is that for the past nine years, I've been teaching a class at the University of Pennsylvania called the future of water. And, and actually, Antoine, starting in the spring semester, I will also be teaching a class at the Wharton School called the Business and Governance of Water. Which makes for a very smooth transition because actually your role today at CSWTS is you're a senior VP for global government affairs. So we have that government element, which you will be teaching, but which is also your daily duty. And I was just wondering, what does it encompass in a group like Suez? Well, so first of all, I'm the global government affairs leader for Suez Water Technologies and Solutions, and we're one of the world's leading water treatment technology companies. So we have 50,000 customers in more than 100 countries. And I really do two main things as a government affairs leader. So one is I engage with governments all over the world to help advocate for sustainable water policies. And then the second thing I do is I try to help position Suez as a global thought leader in water sustainability so that whenever government's thinking about putting a new policy in place, they might actually think of calling us and asking for input. Would you have a recent example of something like that happening? Yeah, I have a couple of examples. One I love, which is I wrote a white paper, which created a menu of policy options that governments could choose from when they were looking to implement water reuse policies, you know, policies that would accelerate the adoption of water reuse solutions. And it's really hard to find representative policies in one place. You have to search all over the world. So I actually, I looked to about 30 countries around the world and I took about a hundred policies they had already implemented successfully and put them all in one place and organized them in a menu that governments could choose from. And in the EU, and I think you know this because you're based in the EU, when the European Commission makes water policies, they don't like to interface um, directly with the private sector. They prefer to interface with water associations in which the private sector can participate. But in this case, the head of the EU environment called my company and said, you know, we're putting in place new water reuse policies in the EU, and I would appreciate it if you could put me in touch with a John Friedman. I have a report he wrote on my desk. <laughs> so that's, Antoine, the power of these you know, white papers. You're actually creating something of value to governments, and it gets you into the conversation. I guess water reuse beyond the white paper will be a lot of what we will be discussing. But in preparation for that discussion, I looked a bit 
your path and what you've done in the past. And you know, there is this big trend which we are regularly discussing on that microphone about ESG and and the sustainability drive. And it sounds to me like you were a bit ahead of times with uh, G's ecomagination. So what's that? And what led you to that 17 years ago? Great question. I was working for GE. And at that time, the CEO was a guy named Jeff Immel. And he had, it was his idea. In fact, I just read his book called Hot Seat, which came out earlier this year. And in the hot seat, he talks about the creation of eco-imagination. And he says he, he had this idea that he wanted to do something on the environmental front, but he didn't really know what it was. So he asked uh, his chief marketing officer to kind of bring somebody into corporate and figure out what kind of program we could put in place. I was that person. So I, GE was really early in the game, but it was the right thing to do and the right time to do it. It was a big global company with 300,000 employees. And this CEO, who was then a young guy, he knew he wanted to do something that was kind of you know uh, in the forefront of environmental issues. You mentioned your What to Reuse white paper. When did you publish that one? Well, I've published many of them over the years. I don't know the exact date on that one. I'd want to say 2012. But two years ago... We published one specific to India because, you know, India is having horrible water challenges. I think according to the World Resources Institute, it's the 13th most water scarce place on earth. So I wrote a white paper specific to India and actually went to Delhi just before COVID hit and met with four Indian ministers and presented the white paper. And we're still engaged with the government of India on that front. I was just trying to put it a bit on, on the timeline because you mentioned water reuse and how the EU was influenced by your white paper. So you, you know how difficult of a topic it was to put through in Europe before even talking of a push. And that is really not yet even fully adopted through the full region. That's going to be my introduction to that deep dive because there's that, that personal element about me. It's the first time I visited the, the US was actually for the Water Reuse Symposium in Seattle in 2015. And I was there as a speaker. Of course, it's a symposium in the US, so you don't have that much foreign speakers and not that much from Europe. But it really impressed me how, how the US was ahead of times when it was to come to this water reuse. And at that time, the big emphasis was on one for dioxin, the situation in California, the situation in, in Florida. And from a European perspective, we were looking at, at fracking water and these kind of topics. And we were really thinking that's going to be an industrial topic. And my question is, since 2015, did it change? Do you really see something moving in that area? And if yes, what? Well, I think it's changed a lot. But when you talk about the US, you know, there are 50 states and in, in a way, they're talking about 50 different countries because each state can put its own policies in place so long as they at least comply with federal policies, but they can go far ahead of public policies. And California usually does. So federally, what happened 2021, February 2021, is the federal government put out a national water reuse action plan. So it's first time ever in the United States, the entire federal government all agencies got together and said, we're going to coordinate to try to put in place a um, unified federal policy to accelerate reuse across the United States. So that's certainly something new since you were here in 2015 at that conference. And California is just speeding ahead. I was wondering that the national plan coming in 2021, is it like a nudge? Is it a must? Is it a regulation? What does it push? 
It's all of those things. It's really a compendium of, I think there are now 55 action items. And the action items are either things the federal government will do by itself, like create new regulations, or will work in concert with state and local governments, like inventory the existing regulations that exist at state and local level and try to kind of make sure that there are regulations in place that will allow for the right level of treatment for the right type of reuse. Or it it could even be encouraging uh, the creation of incentives across the country. I am the owner of one of those action items. And my action item is to create a national award for a water reuse champion. And so a lot of times when we see policies, it's to get governments, local, state and local governments to do things. But my thought was, well, we need corporates to step up too. So how do you get the corporate community engaged? And one way to do that is by incentivizing them through recognition. So you create this reward and recognition program. And we're working on that with uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the University of Pennsylvania and the Water Reuse Association to create metrics for what will qualify as the National Water Reuse Champion and to start giving out the award sometime in the next uh, year or two. So you're going to crown the first one within the next two years? Yeah, I think we're, we're a little bit ahead of the curve because we, we haven't put out a press release on this yet kind of saying what the roadmap will be. So we're making news right here on your your podcast, Antoine. Oh, oh. But the idea is that um, the, the, these four groups, SUA's Water Reuse Association, Chamber of Commerce, and University of Pennsylvania as the academic partner, are going to work together to create the metrics for you know the award and then solicit proposals from corporations across the country. So that'll all be done this year, then next year to start actually issuing the award at a national ceremony. I get how it's important in terms of communication to have a national approach to that. But when it comes to regulation, I guess the situation for water reuse might be very different if you're in Chicago next to the Great Lakes or if you're in Miami or in the middle of Texas. So what's the right level at which you shall take regulations and and actions? Is it the state? Is it even more local than the state? It's a complicated question. First, you asked earlier, what does this National Water Reuse Action Plan do? Does it nudge people? Does it incentivize people? You know, if you think about ways you can promote greater water reuse from a policy standpoint, I think there are four main things you can do. And so one is education and outreach. And we just talked about that. So I think this National Water Use Champion Award is an example of education and outreach. It's kind of creating a reward and recognition program. You, the federal government can also provide technical resources to communities as part of education and outreach that are looking to implement reuse. There are a lot of, I'll call them disadvantaged communities in the United States, well, globally, but you know, here in the United States. And the federal government is looking to provide technical expertise and how these communities can begin to input implement their own reuse programs. So there's education outreach to their incentives. You know, you can give grants or low cost loans. Three, you can remove barriers that these businesses and communities face. Like a lot of times here in the US, water tariffs, water prices tend to be pretty low. So that's a barrier, an economic barrier to convincing somebody to invest in the money to reuse water if they can keep getting water for next to nothing, right? And then the fourth thing is you can create regulations, which we just talked about, or actually mandate that people reuse water, which you can do in, you know, when you're facing acute scarcity. But that is for municipal uses of water. 
How does that impact the industrial side? Is that also a place where reuse shall be pushed or? Yeah, it's the same, but that's the same for industrial or municipal. Those, there are four categories of policies that governments can put in place to get industry or businesses to reuse more water. And I'll give you an example. So on the municipal side, the U.S. government just passed in November a massive infrastructure plan, which has $55 billion in it for water. None of that is available, however, to the private sector. But I think the U.S. government should put in place an investment tax credit to promote industrial reuse of water, just like there's an investment tax credit to promote the adoption of wind energy and solar energy. So it would be to help industry kind of overcome the economic barrier we just mentioned to reuse by giving them a tax incentive. Reward recognition program is one way to get industry to step up and do the right thing. But another way is to kind of help them bridge the economic gaps they're facing. The economic gaps, it's something we discussed on that microphone, I would say, in many shapes. But let me just recall two. The first was with uh, David Lloyd Owen, who wrote that book, Global Water Funding. And he recalls that advertising, which says, reassuringly expensive. I mean, if the price is high enough, then you trust your water. And that's a bit one of the elements we're missing. But even more to your point, I had the discussion with uh, Ellen Bruno from the University of, of California, and she made a study to see how the water tariffs had a direct impact on water reuse, which was to that extent indirect water reuse through an aquifer recharge. So you would be just retreating your water and, and refilling your groundwater. How much of, of a topic is it in the US to raise the tariffs? Is it something which might be happening or is it really off the table, like something which nobody would accept? I think both of those statements are true. <laughs> and you know, for, First of all, in the US, it's, it's not like Israel or Singapore where the national government can just throw a switch and say, hey, tariffs are now this. Because um, here in the US, most people, 85% of people, get their water from government-owned water systems, but not federally, federal government, you know, local agencies. So you have, I think, roughly 50,000 of these local agencies that all set their own water rates, right? So it's really hard to just say, hey, you know, your rates are too low, you should increase them. At the same time, a lot of cities across the country are increasing their water rates because they know they have to sustainably invest in these solutions in providing people safe and abundant water going forward. New York City is an example. They've been increasing their water rates, I think, at just under 10% a year for a while. Talking of New York, and sorry for the name dropping, but we had the discussion with Aaron Tartakovsky from Epic Cleantech, who mentioned how New York, to a certain extent, San Francisco, to a, to a much wider extent, was taking regulations to enforce on-site reuse in buildings. So that is really a proactive approach to say the market won't do it itself. The invisible hand of markets is not that strong that it can force reuse. Let's be directive. Let's do it. But that would be totally off the grid of the 50,000 water utilities and I guess 40,000 wastewater utilities. It's again another level because you say people shall do it inside the building. Is it something which is an epiphenomenon or is it a trend which is catching on? It's definitely happening. I don't know that it's happening in a material enough way to make a huge difference right now. But I do think, you know, this idea of we'll call it decentralized water reuse does make all the sense in the world and will grow in the future. And I just want to mention something called 
the 50-leader home coalition. Does, does that ring any kind of bell with you? I'm chasing them down to, to come on that microphone. <laughs> well, good. I, I was going to recommend them to you, but you're ahead of me. So they're headquartered in uh, Geneva. And they hired a guy who used to be at the Rockefeller Foundation. He was the resilient city leader. And that's who you should ask. And this is a coalition of originally nine organizations, the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, Arcadis, the engineering firm, Dutch-based engineering firm, Suez, and a handful of other organizations. And the idea was to create a water and energy efficient home. So that is decentralized reuse and to pilot it in four places around the world. So, you know, there are initiatives out there trying to push this idea of decentralized reuse. What are the stakes of, of Suez in that game? Because Suez is historically a utility company going to large scale. So what can you do on this small scale? Suez is two things in the water world. It's a water utility, but it's also a water treatment technology company. And if you look at the 50 liter home, the concept is on the, the water efficiency side, because it's water and energy, but on the water side, 50% of the reduction of water will be through recycle on site. And that's a technology play, which is really central to what Suez does. You mentioned piloting. Is it currently piloted in the US? No, you'd have to check with the 50-liter coalition folks, but the last I spoke with them, they were looking to pilot in four places around the world, and I think China, India, Mexico, and here in the US, in Los Angeles. But it's still in the embryonic stages. If you look at, at reuse now from a bit more of a global perspective, if I still look at the, the book from David Lloyd Owen, he's estimating how the water scene shall evolve by 2030, if we want to reach the equilibrium, because you, you know that report from McKinsey, which says that we, might, we will be missing 40% of the water by 2030 if we keep the current pace, what can we do? And one of the things we can do is increase water reuse. And he estimates that by 2030, we shall be close to 10% of the water which is reused worldwide. So countries like Israel, which reuse 80 or 90%, are, might be laughing at that figure. But for most of the countries and for the world in general, it means tripling the level of water reuse. Do you see that realistically happening in the next decade? I, I don't know, you know, globally, right? It's just too hard. I mean, that's too big a canvas um, to think let's about. Let's the US. But I can talk, yeah. So let's talk about some specific places in the US. So California, I just saw the headline yesterday, the newspaper in California is just in the midst of a horrible drought. So the city of Los Angeles announced a couple of years ago that it is going to recycle 100% of its wastewater by 2035. So that's, what is that, 13 years from now. Where is it now? I, I guess it's recycling about 15% of its wastewater. So that, I mean, 85% to go. Maybe it's an aspirational target. I don't know. But I do know that they're gearing up to do this and they're piloting solutions now to take Los Angeles County wastewater and use it for the city, and to take Los Angeles city wastewater and use it. And Suez, by the way, is piloting your water reuse technologies with the city now to try to accomplish that goal. So I do think, Antoine, we are going to see places in the US and places in the world begin to supply huge amounts of their water needs through recycled water. You mentioned how Suez is, is piloting technologies. I have a nasty question. Uh, sorry for that. 
But I thought that reuses is so easy. I mean, you invest in some membrane, you put membranes, and here you go. So what's it that you have to pilot? Hey, I'm with you. I think the technology, that's a good question. I think the technology is extraordinarily well established. Our basic building block at Suez for most of our reuse solutions globally is called the membrane bioreactor, which combines biological treatment with membranes, of course, being a way to physically separate bad things in water from the H2O that you want, right? Viruses, bacteria, cysts. And we have an installed base of more than 1,000 membrane bioreactors around the world treating more than a billion gallons of wastewater each day for reuse, right? So the technology is extremely well established. But put yourselves in the shoes of a city leader telling people, we're going to take our wastewater, treat it, and give it to you to drink. You probably want to be able to say, and guess what? We took this great technology, we piloted it on our own wastewater for 18 months. We have all the test data. It's a thousand percent safe. This is a great program. It's not only important, but it is completely safe for you. So I think that's really the value of these pilot programs. But isn't it the most difficult hurdle to take? And why starting with this one? I mean, it's the example everybody takes when they want to give uh, a failed marketing attempt. They mentioned the toilet to tap. That's a water I don't want to drink and nobody wants to drink. If you explain it better, probably people will get it that anyways, you are drinking water that went through a dinosaur at some point. So we are reusing water for millennium. But the water we drink is such a small portion of the overall water mix. Why should we start with that one when you talk reuse? Why not all the other gray appliances, industrial appliances, and, and agricultural uses of water? Well, I'm, I'm with you. In the US, residential water use is 10% of the pie. Industrial water reuse is about 50%, and agriculture is around 40%. So if you are experiencing water scarcity and you're only focusing on the residential piece, you're missing the big picture. Having said that, if you are providing water to human beings, it's really nice to know that you have a sustainable supply of water for those human beings. That's why you might want to treat your wastewater within a city and make sure it's there as a source of clean water. But I also think you should reuse water for agriculture and industry. Now, on industry, I do think there's an economic barrier because water is so cheap and companies often have the option of taking water from the ground where actually it might be free or a river where, again, it might be free, or even a municipal system where it's sometimes all but free. What you need to do is, I think, create some kind of incentive to get them to invest in the reuse technologies. And on the agricultural front, it's often the same challenge. A lot of farmers get their water only for the cost of electricity to pump it from a canal to their field, for example. So it's hard to get people to invest in, in treating wastewater for reuse. Which is actually the exact thesis of, of Ellen Bruno in the discussion we had, that uh, you should have a tariff for groundwater because it's just too easy to, to take it. Just, just from an economics standpoint, I mean, if there's no pricing signal, you just keep using as much water as you possibly can, right? But if you're beginning to pay a, a material price for that water, you're going to think twice or begin to think about how to use it more efficiently. My surprise was, you know, when I started looking a bit into that, that topic of water reuse in the US, I was thinking of Las Vegas. You know, you have the Bellagio with uh, the fountains. And I thought, 
oh, Las Vegas, I did it again. It's just wasting water. And and it turns out that there, as there is a clear price to water because of the Hoover Dam and everything, all the casinos, they are reusing their water for decades. I mean, long before it was even a trend. So it just shows how the, the incentive is clear. Put a price for water and people will become sustainable. It sounds such of a no-brainer. Who can be lobbying against that for it not to happen? It's a curveball, sorry. No, listen, who could be lobbying against it? If you look in the US right now, one of the lenses that the Biden administration looks through when it thinks about environmental policy is environmental justice. And there are a lot of people who can't afford to pay for clean water. And it's just, that's the reality, right? But I believe that water is a fundamental human right, access to clean water that everybody should have access to clean water. And for those who can't afford it, there needs to be a social safety net. Governments need to ensure that people have this access. But for those who can afford it, they should pay the full cost of treating that water, distributing that water, accruing funds to to invest in new pipes, which will go bad after a period of time, right? So we, I don't know anyone who's... You know, people don't want to pay more. They don't want to see their bills go up. So they would, I think, maybe advocate against increased rates. But really, if you step back, governments need to think about putting in place full cost pricing of water with a social safety net to ensure that everyone has still has access to it. Would you think there is a marketing element to it? Because if you look at the numbers, California, 80% of the people in California don't drink tap water, even when they have tap water. They don't trust it. They go for bottled water. And bottled water, if you take the, the cheapest of it, it's going to be, let's say, 100 to 1,000 times more expensive than tap water. And most of the time, it's going to be of least quality than tap water. So did we, as an industry, fail at marketing? Probably. <laughs> you know, I think the industry can do better. I think it's trying to do better. I think there are efforts underway to make people appreciate how safe their tap water is, but also appreciate the value of water, right? And be willing to pay more for it. Because right now in the US, I think an average water tariff is about $2.65 per cubic meter. A cubic meter is 264 gallons. So it's a penny a gallon. Treated, delivered to your home, safe, a penny for a gallon of water. What do you pay for a bottle of water? You know, a dollar, two dollars, depending where you buy it, right? For a small bottle. So there's no reason to buy bottled water. And you're probably right. It's probably a failure of marketing. I do think young people here in the US are increasingly carrying their own bottles, which they refill from taps as opposed to buying bottled water. Then at least there's some hope. Good to hear. (laughs) (laughs) If we zoom out a bit, you mentioned the infrastructure bill from the Biden administration, which is probably a welcome breath of air in, in an infrastructure sector in the US where... Uh, there was an EPA report which was showing that the pipes classified as very poor between 1980 and 2020 were multiplied by 10. So I would say that the infrastructure in the, globally speaking, the country isn't right now in a very good shape. Is the infrastructure bill currently passed sufficient to correct all of that? Or is it just coming back to the level it should be, but still not compensating for what we didn't do for a decade? Good question. I haven't done the math to see if it's sufficient. But I know that it is a great step in the right direction. And it's going to provide $55 billion, which I mentioned earlier, in incremental 
water funding to what the government typically provides every year. So it'll still be providing the same amounts it was providing on an annual basis, plus this $55 billion over the next five years. A huge chunk of that, or $15 billion, is going to go to replace lead service lines, which is a problem across the United States. Will that be enough money to replace every single lead service line? Probably not. But it's going to replace a lot of them and be a great step in the right direction. $5 billion of that is to treat PFAS. There's never been funding to remove PFAS from drinking water supplies or wastewater flows. This will help communities across the country take a huge step forward in doing that. So it's a really positive step, and the government really deserves to be commended for it. What would you expect from those specific $5 billion which go to, to PFAS removal? What, what is that's that money going to target? Is it going to be municipal, drinking water, wastewater, industrial? $4 billion of it is for municipal drinking water supplies, and $1 billion is for wastewater flows. And the money is going to go from Congress to the EPA, and then the EPA will distribute the money to each of the 50 states according to a formula, and then each of the 50 states will distribute the money to communities within its state, and each state will make the judgment which communities you know most need the money. So that's how it's going to flow, and I think it'll go a long way towards removing PFAS from drinking water supplies and wastewater discharges. And as a technology provider in that game, how do you see it evolving in the next five, 10 years? Do you expect it to become mainstream? Oh, it's 100% going to become mainstream. It's already becoming mainstream. You have states that are now implementing their own PFAS regulations, often moving uh, faster even than the federal government is on that front, although the federal government is moving pretty quickly itself. And you have communities across the country that are already testing their water supplies for PFAS and putting, begin to put actions into place to, to remove the PFAS. If I further zoom out now from the US and look at the rest of your role as a government affairs uh, representative for CSWTS, from what I've read, you're also working with organizations like the World Bank. And I was just wondering, what, what do you do with, with those? Thank you for asking that because I'm a huge fan of the World Bank. Right now, the World Bank has hundreds of water projects underway around the world trying to help poor communities have access to clean water. And I think they have about $29 billion of water projects underway. So they're playing just this critically important role globally. And as a private sector company, our goal is to try to support the World Bank's broader efforts through providing technology insights, market data insights, what's happening around the world, what can be done, business model insights, and on occasion to be a company that helps implement some of the World Bank solutions. You mentioned business model insights. Isn't it the very field where Suez has the least inputs? I mean, you're a traditional company, several decades old. Do you still imagine new business models? That is, yeah, not, that well, is beyond I, the curveball. That is really a nasty question. No, <laughs> I, I think the point on business models, what I was really thinking is that too often when water solutions are implemented in poor communities or disadvantaged communities, um, they're not sustainable because somebody comes and they build some system and it's over the long term, it's not properly maintained or operated. So from a business model standpoint, I would say that the historical Suez business model, which is to design, build, sometimes own, 
but almost always to operate water or wastewater treatment system or a reuse system is a much more sustainable model because it's always properly maintained. So that's kind of the point we try to get across. Don't just look at the lowest upfront capital cost. Look at the life cycle cost and and try to pick the lowest life cycle cost. I won't sidetrack you here, but to, to that extent, the book of Gary White and Matt Damon, The Worth of Water, is very impressive about this element of the moving away from the, the build, break, and rebuild approach and rather go into how do you sustain it on the long run, which is also something which Christopher Gaston, that microphone, shared uh, some weeks ago when he expressed how safe water pays for itself, but you have to do it right. Last question for you in, in the deep dive. If you look into my, my crystal ball and you look into the future, what will tell you you've succeeded in 10 years? 10 years might be too short of a window, but you know, <laughs> if you look today, and this isn't me personally, of course, it's I think all of us collectively. 800 million people, according to the World Bank, who don't have access to clean water, not acceptable. So if it's 10 years or 20 years, whatever it is, we have to get everyone access to clean water. You know, the private sector has a role in that by developing technologies that can be cost-effective and efficient, putting the right business models in place. The multilateral organizations, development agencies like the World Bank, they have a role to play. Governments have a role to play. We all do. That's how I will measure, you know, my success. But, you know, I'm just one stakeholder in a really big universe of players. Isn't it very risky to define your success upon access to water for all when you know that the world has failed in that endeavor for the past 50 years? I'm not speaking for, for my company's commitment. I'm speaking as John Friedman, but I would say, uh, no, it's not risky at all. And if you're not aspirational and if you don't have some aspirational mission, you are definitely not going to accomplish it. So you got to start with something. And here, at least that would be my mission, my, my vision. That would be the perfect conclusion before that deep dive. But I lied when saying that was my last question. I have one more. You mentioned you're going you're gonna to teach the future of water in, in university. What do you tell your students? What is the key message you, you try to bring them across? When I teach my new class in the spring at Wharton, by the way, there's a 12-week course. The first class is going to be to talk about what the global water challenges are. Those 800 million people who don't have access to, to clean water, the 2 billion people who live in areas that are chronically short of water, the economics we've been talking about. And then the rest of the course is going to be about what do you do about that? How do you ensure that the world has a sustainable approach to water? And then the last class The students, it's going to be an H2O shark tank where the students are going to present their ideas for businesses, business models that can help achieve global water sustainability. And there'll be a panel of judges. Maybe you would like to come and, and if not be a judge, maybe record the class or ask them questions, be part of that process. But that's the class. And I actually think that's the right model for thinking about these global water challenges we face, that this class is the way to go about it. Well, first, you got me hooked. So I don't know how serious you are with the invite, but I'd be very happy to be there. <laughs> oh, uh, no, <laughs> 100%. No. Just bring that microphone because I think you should interview these students and I think they're going to be impressive and have some great ideas. Deal. Okay. But you know, there, there's even one more element to it, which is when I was myself a student, to me, the only output was to go work for the Suez and Veolia of this world. And I never thought that I could myself 
have an impact. I could myself create something. And the more I discuss, like we do right now, or like I did with many of the guests on that microphone, I realized that it doesn't depend on on big corporations or even on governments. It, It depends on all of us to take it on. So it's fascinating that you use that as the key message of a course you're teaching at, at Wharton School. I mean, that's how we, we create an impact, I guess. I think so. And these are young, smart people. So get them engaged. Well, I think we have a future prospect to, for a follow-up. And that makes for a perfect conclusion for that deep dive. John, if, if, if that's right for you, I propose you to switch to the rapid-fire questions. It's time for the rapid fire questions. In that last section, I'll try to keep the questions short and you should keep the answers short as well. But don't worry, I'm never cutting the microphone in case you have a longer answer to make. What is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? We already touched on it, but in Los Angeles, where we are piloting right now to take Los Angeles County's wastewater and treat it so that it could be reused. And they're going to scale that up. They're talking about scaling that up from, it's a half million gallon per day pilot, 200 million gallon per day uh, reuse plant, which would be the largest in the US by far. That's the most exciting thing I'm working on. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? You know, one one thing that always surprises me is every time I think I'm right and I'm, I'm positive, then I learn I'm wrong. And one, one thing recently was with this 50 liter home coalition, because I just thought, wow, this is one of the greatest things I've ever heard of. And I do believe that, by the way. But when I presented it to a lot of large water reuse players here in the United States and said, we should engage and we can help them pilot this in Los Angeles, I got pushback. And the pushback was, we've invested billions of dollars in large centralized water reuse treatment plants, and you're going to choke off the flows of wastewater to our plants. So I, I believe the tent should be big enough for us to think about decentralized reuse, centralized reuse. But then when I think, put myself in their shoes, I say, well, you know, I can see their point of view. But that surprised me that the 50 liter home didn't get just fully embraced by all of the reuse players here in the US that there was some pushback. I told you I was going to sidetrack, so so I warned you, so I, I feel authorized to do it. To my knowledge, the US is the only country in the world where you have tariffs which go lower if you take high volumes. Like you would be going to Walmart and, and you buy 20 pieces of something, it's a bit cheaper, which is okay if you go to Walmart, but it's surprising when it comes to water where you would expect the opposite, like the negative behavior, which is to use too much water, wouldn't be rewarded. So listen, Antoine, that is a huge barrier to getting industry to reuse water. And we have actually had customers whose names I will not reveal, but say to us, I would love to implement um, a water reuse facility as part of our sustainability goals. But I just can't make the economics work because the more water we use, the lower our rate per unit of water. And in some cases, there's even something called a holding charge where just to ensure they have access to, you know, the, the, the amounts of water that businesses use can spike and drop and spike, it just depends. But if they want to have access to the top amount they might need at any one time, they have to pay what's called a holding charge to have access to that. And if they implement water reuse solutions, they still have to pay the holding charge because sometimes they're going to spike. And there are all kinds of barriers to reuse on the rate side. We're back to the economics of it, which is the the difficult part of the equation. But let me stop my sidetrack here. Is there something you're doing today 
in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? I don't think so. I think I just need to do more of everything I'm doing. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, just, you know, I just don't have enough time to do everything I need to do. But no, my, my job is to engage with governments um, around the world and try to promote water sustainability. So I need to do more of that. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? I think we've been talking about it. And the reason I say that is we're seeing so much scarcity in so many places. And the answer to the scarcity is treating the wastewater for reuse. It's cheaper than using desalinated water. It's available and it's just sitting there. The world is reusing. You had asked about, I think, a figure of 10% by 2030. Right now, of the world's wastewater that they're collecting and treating, they're only reusing 2% of that, right? So we have this huge untapped reservoir of wastewater that we can treat to meet pretty much all of our needs going forward. So I think that is going to be the trend for the next 10, 20 years. I give you a chance to enforce that trend with my next question. If you were a world political leader, what would be your first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? My personal, not my company, my personal observation is that the world is taking too fragmented an approach to water challenges. You have great organizations like the World Bank. You have tremendous philanthropies. You mentioned uh, Matt Damon's uh, water.org. There are so many other organizations out there, but they're not working in concert with one another. I think we need to find a way to get governments, NGOs, philanthropies working in concert so we can achieve scale and greater impact. I really think that's the key to the kingdom on addressing global water challenges. Is that even possible? Because water is, is something which is, I know it's already scattered today, but when you think of it, water is so different from one place to another. It's the kind of good you cannot really move or not over long distances. It, it rapidly becomes very expensive. What would be the right body to, to bring all of that together? I don't know. I don't know that I have the answer to that question. But I think if President Biden stood up, for example, and said, wow, I think we should get together, the leaders around the world, and talk about how we coordinate. And of course, the water solutions need to be implemented at a local level. That's where you know people are, and the dynamics are different. Some areas have too much water, they have flooding, some have no water. But if you could have somebody who's arguably the leader of the free world stand up and say, this is something we need to focus on globally and bring the world leaders together, I think that would be a good first step. Well, it looks like when Mr. Biden is over, you can have a run at, at replacing him. And then as a world leader, I, I would be on your side. <laughs> Maybe uh, you and I should just meet him for lunch in Washington and talk this through while he's in power now. Sounds like another good idea. Well, so listen, um, I'm going to send you and I'm going to send you an invitation. I have the date of that Shark Tank H2O. It's going to be in uh, May, next May, and you need to put it on your calendar. My pleasure. I would definitely put that on my calendar. I have a last question for you in that deep dive, which is: Would you have someone that you would recommend me that I should definitely invite on that microphone, which would be as awesome as you were? Yeah, you know, Braulio Moreno at the 50 Leader Home Coalition. And, you know, I think what he's doing is so interesting and someday will be really important. Well, John, it's been a pleasure. If people want to follow up with you after that 
discussion? Where shall I redirect them? Well, that's a good question. You can find me on LinkedIn. Like always, the the, the links will be in the episode notes. So just have a look and, and click on it. And it was a pleasure to, to spend that hour with you. See you soon in, in the Shark Tank. Thank you, Antoine. Great to see you. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.